Hey, we want to thank you for listening today to a sermon from Edwards Lake Church. And we hope that you recognize the message of God as we open his word together and examine his incredible life-changing teaching. We pray that this message will challenge you, motivate you, or touch you in some way. Let's open the Bible together. We are going to continue in our series on the the Mark Your Bible series. So uh, hopefully you brought that Bible. If not, you have the verses on the back of your bulletin. And I would encourage you to fill those in in your Bible as we try to create these different tracks. Uh, Tonight, we're just going to jump straight on in. Uh, Our first verse is in John chapter 17, which is where we'll be in just a moment. So go ahead and open your Bibles to John 17 and Jesus' great prayer there in the upper room. Tonight, we're going to be talking about the concept of there being one church or oneness in the church. And this is one of those questions that gets presented to us often in that that almost hated accusation that we get in the church of, you people think you're the, you all know what the rest of that statement is, right? You're the only ones going to heaven. And we hear that sometimes from people who want to make an accusation or they kind of want to force you into a thought pattern where you either have to say no whereby the conclusion is everybody's going to heaven. That's the logical uh, train wreck that happens after the end of that. Or you say yes and come across as judgmental, and now you no longer are worth listening to because you're a judgmental bigot. Like uh, That's the offering they put on the table with that kind of question or that kind of statement of "You're you're the ones that think you're the only ones going to heaven. I would argue that neither one of those extremes are really true. Neither one of those extremes are worth backing yourself into in a a logical argument of sorts. And that the best thing to do whenever you are confronted with that sort of accusation is to say, why don't we just look at what the Bible says about it? You're not committing one way or the other. You're not saying, yes, you're right, or no, you're wrong. You're not being uh, loosey-goosey, ecumenical, we're just going to say everybody is saved universally, but you're also not making some sort of judgmental statement that says, yes, only my people are the ones going to heaven. Don't let yourself get backed into a corner. Always turn people to the scriptures. And that's what I want to do tonight as we look at maybe some some passages you can lead someone through when they have that sort of statement, you can say, wait, wait, before we make that kind of judgment call or that kind of statement, let's look at what the Bible says about Christ's church. And it's that simple. Not, Not about some denomination, not about some particular earthly organization of people, about Christ's church. What does the Bible say about Christ's church? And if you can get people to do that, then you can make some pretty simple conclusions with them based on passages of Scripture. Okay? So that, that's going to be our goal. The other thing we're going to notice tonight, and this is another argument that we tend to get into in this particular topic, is there, there are some who have such an ecumenical view And by that term, I mean any denomination is okay because we all have the same Jesus. 
And so they have such a loose ecumenical view that basically their viewpoint is denominationalism is God's plan. And I think the Bible is very directly in opposition to that. God's goal, Christ's church, was not a, 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 a wide, varied group of people with different doctrines and different theologies and different practices. It was a single group. And we need to talk about the church that way. Uh, and, and the Bible talks about the church that way. So let, let's dig into this. John chapter 17, you've got a long prayer that Jesus prays here. And we don't have time to dig into all of it. But of course, as always, I encourage you to dig into the context of the different passages. But I do want to point out these three verses here. John 17, verses 20 through 22. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me, so that they may be one, as we are one. So here, we know Jesus is talking about those who would follow his disciples and believe in Jesus because of the work and the words of the disciples. That's us. That's the modern church. We believe what we believe because the disciples put those words down on paper and allowed us to carry it generation by generation and use it as the gospel message to share with other people. We believe in Jesus because, as it says here, we believe through their word. So Jesus is, in a sense, praying about you and me. And what does he pray about us today and those in yesteryear and, and anybody from the time of the disciples on? What does Jesus pray about? What does he desire that we be one, that we be unified, that we be in unity, that we have agreement, that we be one people, that we not have varying ideas on what we need to do and where we need to go and how we need to live and, and what we should believe. We should be one people. Now, somebody wants to say that's judgmental and bigoted. They're saying that about Jesus, not about me. They're saying Jesus is a bigot because he only allows one group of people to go to heaven. Now again, part of our difficulty is that we want to define that one group of people as a modern organization of people that we call denominations, and that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is saying believers who believe in him because of the work of the disciples, the words of the disciples, they should be one people. And that's important. And how far do we take being one people? Uh, well, look at there. That's, that's the points I just made. I just skipped over my slide. So how far should we take being one people? That's our, our next passage of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Now, we are familiar enough with the Bible to know that Corinth, the church in Corinth, was the, I would dare say, the most divided church that we read about in the New Testament. They were arguing about everything. 
Some were gathering and taking the Lord's Supper and getting drunk, and others were, were being left with none. They were suing one another. They were arguing about everything. They were allowing sin to get away in their midst because some people thought it should be taken care of, and other people thought those, those, uh, the sinners should be left alone. They were even arguing about who had the best spiritual gift. Mine's better than yours. <laughs> like that, I mean... How juvenile do you get? But to argue about which spiritual gift is better than the other spiritual gift, and therefore we can create a hierarchy among the membership of who's better than who else based on the gifts God has given us. But that's the Corinthian church. Paul, in a letter that he writes to correct these types of problems, right at the beginning of the letter makes this statement. Chapter 1, verse 10. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. I don't know how you get any more blunt than that. Be the same. Be the same in the way you understand things. Be in the same in the, in the judgments that you make about what is important. Be the same in, in the way that you talk. Be the, don't, don't be divided up. Don't be okay to, as we use the term, the phrase, agree to disagree. We, we shouldn't be okay with that. Now, are, are there going to be varying ideas on how a passage of Scripture can be understood? Yes. But we can't be okay with that. Like, our goal is not to have 20 different varieties of the way we understand a passage of Scripture. Our goal should be try to understand it the same. We can't just agree to disagree. We can't be ecumenical. We can't just say, well, I know this group over here believes this, and this group over here believes something entirely the opposite of the first group. But you know what? They both love Jesus, so we're good. We're good to go. Is that what Paul's saying here? Not at all. And we've got to be careful that we're not allowing division and disagreement that Paul would not allow in this Corinthian church. The church, the one church that Jesus said should be one as he and the Father are one, should be a church that is in agreement a church that has the same understanding and the same conviction with no division in it. That's what we should look like. Now, we don't always. I mean, we, we've got to face reality. There are times we disagree on things. There are times where we have different understandings of things. There are times when I get up and teach a Bible class, and several of you, much smarter people than I am, come to me and go, mm and we have a great discussion about it, I hope. And, and there are times when, when y'all come to me and go, I'm not sure about this, and I go home and I study it, and I go, hmm, never considered it that way. And I learn, and I grow, and I hope maybe that works the other direction too. But our goal shouldn't be, well, that Adam, he's just kooky. We're just going to let him go, kind of go down his own path. We'll just agree to disagree. No. Agree to always try to agree. Agree to work toward agreement. 
That's the standard. That's the goal. That's what we should be doing. And so when we're talking about the church, the church should be a body of people that are working together with the same purpose, same mind, same understanding, same conviction, same judgment, same ideas and ideals. That's what we should be. Okay? Everybody with me so far? Have I given you plenty of time for those who are underlining to underline and mark? And do, okay. I, I, I can ramble longer, I promise you. It, it is a, um, that is my God-given talent the, that, that makes me by no means superior to anyone. All right, so Ephesians chapter 4, I want to read verse 1 through 6, and then we're going to skip down to verses 11 through 13 and draw a couple of conclusions. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, Bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Now skip down with me to verse 11. And he himself speaking of Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. That's our next passage. Now, not hard to note what's happening there in the first few verses that we read. There are seven ones. You are to be one body, one faith, one Lord, one God, one baptism. I mean, it, it, there is a definite emphasis on unity and that we should be Christians who pursue unity. That's our goal. God gave us servants in the church whose function and role is to teach to the outcome of unity. Do you see that? Pastors, teachers, and evangelists should be working together to bring about the outcome of unity. If they're not, they're failing their job. Because that is how you build the church up in a way that causes growth, it causes even explosion, it causes peace, causes the body to work together and to function properly, is through unity. And so we need to be people who are unified. Now that doesn't sound anything like denominationalism, does it? Denominationalism, where we've got one group over here who teaches the, that, that baptism is unnecessary for salvation, and you've got another group over here that teaches that baptism is necessary in order to pursue salvation, and they, they, they cannot function as one group. They can't. It's just not possible. And so they have to study together 
to come to unity, to come to a common understanding of what the Bible teaches. Not what we want it to say, not what we feel deep, deep in our heart, what the Bible actually says. That God gave these roles in the church in order to bring about unity of faith and unity of knowledge of the Lord, of knowledge of God's Son to bring about growth and maturity in one body. That, that, that's what we're taught in Scripture. We cannot make the passages we have read so far coexist with the concept of denominationalism. And I don't by that mean that we need to go around proclaiming we're the only ones going to heaven. Because oftentimes when we make that kind of statement, it is perceived as if we are saying the church of Christ denomination is the only one that's going to heaven. And that is not an accurate statement either. I've heard preachers say tongue-in-cheek, and I hate it, but I'm going to say it anyway. The, well, I'm not even sure all of us are going to heaven. And, and the reason behind that statement is to say it is not by being a member of a denomination called the Church of Christ that anybody is going to be saved. What is it that brings us to salvation? It is by committing ourselves to that relationship we make in Jesus and walking in the light with Jesus. That's what brings salvation. And by doing that, you become part of the one body of which we are to be building up the, this one body of which Christ is the head, this one body that we, we are to be maturing in. That one body is the only ones going to heaven. That I can say without hesitation at all. My goal is to be part of that one body. And if I can be part of that one body, then I can be confident in my salvation according to 1 John chapter 5 and the, passage, the verses we looked at this morning. That's the goal. That's the truth. Uh, so I, I, I'd say that so that you can be cautious with the way that you answer both the accusation that we opened up the sermon with because they're asking, they're accusing that we think the Church of Christ denomination or uh, as I heard Floyd Chapelier say one time, the non-denomination denomination. That, that's what we are. We unite ourselves under the title of non-denominationalism. That's not what saves us. And we need to be cautious that we don't word things in a way that, that we are perceived or understood that way. What saves us is association with Jesus and obedience to Jesus, and the gift of grace and mercy that comes from Jesus, and walking in the light with Jesus. And all of those are biblical mandates for us. And so those are the ideas that we should be united under. Those are the ideas we should be in agreement about. If the Bible says it, we should agree with it and agree about it. Everybody with me? Yes? Okay, trying to be as, as blunt as possible. All right, Galatians chapter 5, and we're going to start reading in verse 6. Galatians chapter 5, and we'll start reading in verse 6. Ooh, that is tiny, and I'm just going to pull out my Bible. 
Galatians, not five, Galatians one. Why do I keep saying five? I feel like I'm Chris announcing the wrong room for the Lord's Supper. <laughs> Galatians chapter five, or, ah, one, one, Galatians one. Everybody go to Galatians one, and we're going to read verse six through ten. It's not even a five up there. Six through ten. Galatians one, six through ten. Here we go. I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who has called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we have said before, I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you receive, a curse be on him. For am I uh, I now trying to persuade people or God? Or am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now there, very boldly, he said, again, I don't know how you get more bold than this. If you teach something that is different than the gospel you've already received, if you hear something that is different than the gospel you've already received, then that teacher is to be cursed. Even if that teacher is an angel, he is cursed. Because there is no other gospel by which we will be saved. There is no other name by which we can be saved than Jesus Christ, according to Acts chapter 4. And so any division or perversion of that truth is a cursed division. It is not to be accepted. It is not something that we're to allow. Now, by this, I don't mean any diversion from your opinion about the gospel. What I'm talking about is when the Bible is clearly stating one thing is the answer... Some other answer that is contrary to that truth is cursed, is wrong, is going to lead you down a wrong road, even if it's just a slight alteration off the gospel. Do you notice the way it words that in this passage? Not that there is another gospel, but there is a perversion of the gospel, a changing of the gospel. And so what we're taught here is that there is literally one truth. That's it. One truth. Hold on to the one truth. Do not let anybody persuade you differently than believing in the one truth. Because that is a cursed road to go down. That's pretty clear. I, I also want to point out here at the end that... A lot of times, and and this is a judgmental statement on my part, uh, and and obviously there's obviously exceptions to this this statement, but oftentimes whenever we find ourselves hearing perversions from the one truth, they are perversions that please us. And you've got to be cautious about accepting truth just because you find it pleasing. I like what that guy has to say. Or, man, I really like the way he says that. that. That's dangerous. Your one and only standard for what you believe should not be how well it is spoken, but how true is it. That should be it. Now, it's nice when the truth is spoken 
fluently and it's spoken in a way that's easy to hear. But I'll be honest, there's a lot of truth that just isn't easy to hear. And we've got to be willing to be okay with that. Much of the denominational world, and I will, and, and don't, don't crucify me for this, I could even throw us into this statement. We pursue what makes us comfortable and feel good because it's easy. And we need to be very careful about that. Okay? That is a human nature issue. We want to do what comes easy. We are like water. We take the path of least resistance. And, and here, Paul is telling the Galatian, we can't be doing what we do for the purpose of pleasing people. If you're doing what you do to please people, then you are no longer a servant of Christ because you're not trying to please Christ. If, if you hear things, that you wonder about and you're not sure about, and, and you're like, okay, well, I like this answer better than this answer, so I'm going to go with it because it's easier. Be careful about that. Or, and I, I'll throw myself under the bus here, how many times have I gone and sat down with somebody, and I know that what I'm about to say or what I'm about to show them from Scripture is going to be a little bit difficult for them to hear, so I'll tell it with a story or I'll make it a little easier on the ears, or I'll even make excuses for what is true as if I'm trying to spare their feelings. I'm by no means I'm saying you need to be harsh with the word of God. You are to speak the word with truth. You are to speak and defend your faith with, with, with respect and with patience. Uh, with gentleness, some of your versions even use. So I'm not saying we should be harsh and batter people over the head with the truth, but I am saying we cannot divert from the truth. The truth is what matters. Not our feelings, not their feelings, not their willingness to accept it. It's the truth. And we need to be very careful that we teach it that way. James chapter 4, it's really verse 11 and 12. So I, I think I only put verse 11 on the screen. I want to read both. James chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. Over here we're told, don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy, and who are you to judge your neighbor? That, that principle there of do not judge your brother, do not create rules by which your brother must live in order to please you. Why? Because there is one lawgiver. Only one. Now, couple of things to note about that. I am not the source of truth. Do not come to me for truth. Go to the Bible. Now, can I point you to things in the Bible? Yes, as you can me. It is a reciprocal relationship here. Uh, there's plenty in there that I don't know. There is plenty in there that you don't know. And if we will work together, we will know more. That's one reason we are one body. Okay? 
But secondly, what you find is if there's only one lawgiver, how many variations of the law are there? Shouldn't be any variation. There's just one lawgiver. He has set the law and he has delivered the law and that's it. We don't have a right to go and change the law. We don't have a right to go and try to make different laws that match what we like. We don't have a right to manipulate the law and make it easier. It's not our, not our choice. This is God's law. He is the lawgiver. We must let him be the lawgiver, not ourselves. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. 2 Peter chapter 3. One and two. Dear friends, this is now the second letter I have written to you. In both letters, I want to stir up your sincere understanding by way of reminder so that you recall the words previously spoken by the holy prophets and the command of our Lord and Savior given through your apostles. You know, Peter reminds these Christians that they are to be united on the teachings of the prophets and apostles. Not, not, not a whole lot of different sources here, are there? Jesus or God is the lawgiver, and you've got the apostles and the, uh, the prophets who were the law deliverers, along with Jesus. And, and those are our sources. That's all we got. Uh, we don't have anybody who can come, can come down today and give more law who can expound from a revelatory basis what, what God means, or, well, God didn't mean it to be interpreted that way. Here's a new law to help you interpret that law better. There's no fixing of the law. The law is the law. The apostles and the prophets delivered that law to us. That's what we got, and that's what we hold on to. We can't introduce anything else to that. One of the things we need to be very careful about is that we can let our tradition become law if we're not. We can let our even probably more likely in our, our circle is let our hermeneutic become the new law. Our method of interpretation becomes a law in and of itself because if you use any other method of interpretation, now you're, you're, you're no longer following the truth. The truth is in the Bible, not in the methodology. And as long as we are truly, sincerely pulling the truth out of Scripture, it is truth. Okay, I'm, I'm again... Let me dis differentiate. I'm not talking interpretation. I'm talking what the Bible clearly says. The Bible clearly says, turn the other cheek. Now, I can't go around and teach my interpretation of turn the other cheek or my circumstantial application of turn the other cheek when it does apply and when it doesn't apply as if those things are law. Or else I'm guilty of doing many of the same things that the Jews would do. I've, I've demonstrated for you all before the kind of ways that the Jews would do that. For instance, the, the Old Testament law said, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And so they had 
uh, long passages that were written on exactly what that means and exactly how you were supposed to do it and when Sabbath began and when Sabbath ended. And okay, so now we got to build a hedge on the beginning of the Sabbath day and a hedge on the end of the Sabbath day to make sure that we don't accidentally break the Sabbath. And now we're going to create 39 different categories of work and what you're prevented from doing because you're not allowed to work on a Sabbath day. And now we need to interpret each one of these categories with a bunch of rules as to why you can lift this item but you can't lift this item because one of those is work and the other one is necessary in order to save something in a certain circumstance and and it's why you can't throw water on a fire but you can build a wall in front of a fire to keep a fire from spreading because you're not allowed to put out on I mean you got all of these rules and they demanded you follow the rules as law that's not law. That didn't come from the lawgiver. That didn't come even from the law deliverers, namely Moses. Those were interpretations taught as law that then got confused with the law. And can we be guilty of doing the same thing sometimes with our interpretations, with our understandings, with the way that we preach? and teach exactly the way things are supposed to be done, and if they're not done that way, you're going to get in trouble. I got in trouble one time. I don't think I've ever told this story here. Uh, early in my, uh, my, my preaching days, I got in trouble because it was a small congregation we worked with, and in the front, they had this itty-bitty little screen. It was probably like three feet wide. It was very tiny, and, and the, the building was probably about as long as this building, and so people in the back couldn't see anything I was putting on that screen, and so we decided we were going to get a bigger screen, and you know, I'm, I'm young. Bigger the better, right? So I got the ginormous 10-foot wide screen that, I mean, you would have been able to see it from the, from the elementary school across the street, but I mean, it was, it was huge. The problem with that was, is once you put it down, I mean, it literally took the entire front wall from ceiling to floor and from side to side. I mean, it, it was a massive screen. And, and you can imagine if that's the case in this kind of setup, we've got a lectern that's in the way. Well, that, that was problematic. So I, we had no elders or, or anyone for me to get approval from, so I went there one day and I pulled the lectern and put it down on the floor, because I prefer to be down here anyway, and we put the Lord's Supper table up on the pulpit. Oh, mercy me. Like, I, I, man, I have, that was the first, my first experience is ever being yelled at as a preacher. Because I was putting myself before the Lord's Supper. And I looked that man straight in the face, and I said, or... I lifted it up. Which, which way are we going here? I, I didn't say it as snarky as that, but, you know, I, I, I didn't, I didn't. So, you know, it, it, now, the, the, the compromise was I just moved the lectern over to the side because I didn't like standing behind it anyway, and that way there was full view of in remembrance of me, which is really his main concern was how was he going to remember if he couldn't read in remembrance of me. So we, we fixed the problem. But, I mean, he made moral accusations against me that I would be so arrogant and pompous as to place myself before my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
That's not law. It's hard to even say that's tradition. Like, that's just one man's opinion of the way the building should be set up. But we get upset about things like that. And when we get upset about something being done that we don't like, our go-to action is to moralize it in some way to make this a Bible argument so that we can win it as opposed to recognizing that it's just a matter of opinion. We can't do that. We got one lawgiver, and we got the apostles and the prophets who have delivered that law to us, and that is enough. And that should be enough for us. That's what we are to unite about. Not opinion, not, oh, I learned this thing from an academic level. I think culturally they might have understood it this way. Well, I think culturally they understood it this way. That we can have a disagreement about. But when the Bible says, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, be baptized for the remission of your sin, we can't disagree about that. We can't have an argument about what truth declares as true. And that's what we have to be in agreement about. Next passage, 2 John, verse 9 through 11. 2 John, verse 9 through 11. Anyone who does not remain in Christ's teaching but goes beyond it does not have God. The one who remains in that teaching, this one has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your home. And do not greet him. For the one who greets him shares in his work. Now again, what we're dealing with here is not opinion, it's not tradition, it's the teachings of Jesus. It is the truth. It is what is declared as right and wrong in Scripture. And that is where we should camp, that is where we should stay, that is what we should hold on to, that is what we should never let go of, because it is the truth that matters. And that's what we're supposed to be of the same mind and the same judgment, uh, that we're to have the same understanding and the same conviction according to the Christian Standard Bible. We have to stay there and not go outside of that. For someone who is willing to go outside of that, among brethren, and again, I, I think there's a context here of we're, we're talking about judging a brother or sister who goes outside of the teachings of Christ because we're told over in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that our job is to judge brothers and sisters, not to judge the outsiders. Okay, outsiders are well beyond the teachings of Christ. But for, for our brethren, we are to... to fellowship and be in relationship with and be in a, an, an, a great relationship with those who hold on to the truth. But those who don't, we need to get that fixed. We need to get that fixed so that we can be in fellowship with them again. And, and that's where that becomes important to hold on to that truth. Titus chapter 3 verse 11 or 10 and 11, our last verse for this evening says, reject a divisive person after the first and second warning. For you know that such a person has gone astray and is sinning. He is self-condemned. And so it is of utmost importance that we hold on to the truth and that we hold one another to the truth and that we make sure that we are you know, helping one another understand what is true. And when we have a brother or sister who are willing to go outside of that truth, 
we need to recognize they are walking away from a relationship with not only with God, but with God's people. That's the idea here of he is self-condemned. You know, we sometimes feel bad about the idea of making a, a judgment call about a brother or sister if they've walked away from truth or they've walked away from what, what the Bible is clear about and, and realize you're not walking away from them. You're standing in the same place holding on to the truth. They are the ones walking away. They are the ones condemning themselves. And our job is to continue to try to pull them back to that truth. But until they're willing to do that, we've got to reject them on a fellowship level because it is important that they recognize what they are giving up by not holding on to the truth. They are giving up their relationship with God and with God's people. Does all that make sense? Yes? No? I have enough yeses that I feel like I can click the button. All right, so that's important for us to understand. If you're talking with somebody who is a, 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 somebody from the denominational world and they're wanting to make some sort of accusation against you, be clear with them. You know, first of all, if you can, get them to sit down and look at some verses with you because they can argue with you all day long. They can't argue with Scripture. But secondly, even if, if, if that's not the occasion, you don't get that opportunity, make sure you're clear. No, I am not saved because I am a member of a human organization called the Church of Christ. Not at all. I believe I am saved because I am connected to Christ, and I do my best to follow his will, and I do my best to live in his grace. And when they make the probably, the, the probable response for them will be, well, yeah, I do that too. You say, well, then you would love to sit down and study the Bible with me, wouldn't you? Because if you love God that much, the way I love God that much, then you will love digging into God's word with other people who love digging into God's word. And, and, and put that on the line. Create that opportunity for you to sit down and, and look at these verses. And, I mean, that's a great opportunity at that point to say, well, hey, you know, we were talking about this the other day. I want you to understand why I believe it's most important that you be part of the body of Christ, that you be part of this, this church that Christ set up that we be in agreement, and we can't just agree to disagree. And, and when you come across, oh, well, we disagree on things, you go, okay, well, then this is where we need to study. Okay, this is where we need to talk. Uh, we, we need to make sure that we have the same agreement if the Bible's clear about this. Uh, and, and that becomes important in order to create those opportunities. One thing I, I think we're all in agreement on in here is that baptism is necessary to be saved. The Bible is so very clear on that. You know, Mark chapter 16, verse 16, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, he who does not believe shall be condemned. Acts 2, 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sin, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, baptism now saves you. you know, there are so many passages that make that abundantly clear. There are a lot of people in the world that have been convinced that it's not, that, that that is not the answer. How do we fellowship with them if we're not even in the same body? We've got to be careful about that. 
Our goal shouldn't be, though, to dismiss them or shun them or push them away, but it should be to bring them to that body so that we can be in fellowship with them, so that we can have that relationship. And so I encourage you, if you're not a Christian, if you've not been baptized into Christ, if you've not been saved through having your sins washed away in the grace of Jesus, do that. Do that so that we can be in the same family together, so that we can be in fellowship with God together. For those of us who, who are, maybe for whatever reason, you, you know, you've, you've lost opportunities to share this truth with others. Don't miss any more. You've got the tools at your fingertips right there in your Bible, right? It's easy to go through and see that. Uh, it, it's a great resource to be able to, to lead people to the truth and to get them asking questions which you can show them answers to in the Bible and get them connected to God. So if you, if you need prayers, if you need help, if you need some way in which we can uh, assist you in your relationship with God. We want you to fix that and let us know how we can. So if you need the invitation, please come forward as we stand and sing this song. Hosanna, you're my king. Thanks for listening and studying God's word with us. We want to help you draw closer to Jesus as your Lord. If you feel some need as a result of today's message, whether that be a need to seek God's salvation or you are just in the need of prayers, please reach out to us. You can find out more about us, including contact information at edwardslakechurch.org. If you want to continue to open God's word with us, please check out other sermons on our podcast or come visit with us at Edwards Lake Church anytime you can. Thanks again, and we pray God's blessings for you.